As we conclude our series through Joshua, I recognize the fact there are three groups of people this morning. Those that uh, felt like Joshua series was way too long. Those that felt like it wasn't long enough, we should have gone chapter by chapter. And those who are asking the question, who's Joshua? But I think you will enjoy this message. It's the conclusion of a very, very powerful section of scripture. It's the story of the conquest of Israel. And they were led by this great, courageous man, this warrior, this strong individual who had tremendous faith and confidence in God. His name is Joshua. And Joshua leads the people into the land of Canaan. And over ten years, they fight these battles. And God gives them. It wasn't their desire. It wasn't what they wanted. It wasn't God's, their doing. It was God's doing. And God wanted them in the land. God had a purpose for Israel to be in the land of Canaan, to bring glory to his name, ultimately. And so they arrive, and there they are. And the question is, what will they do next? See, arriving is only half the battle, right? We all know that. I mean, getting to where you want to get is just half the battle. Staying there is the rest of it. And that is true in the Christian life. It's one thing for God to invade your life, And for you to come to a place in your life where you realize, I don't want to do it on my own anymore. I'm no longer going to challenge God. I'm no longer going to fight against His will. I am no longer going to question Him. I'm going to give in. I'm going to believe in God. I'm going to believe in His way. I'm going to give myself over to the Lord. And God brings you into a relationship. He does that work. He does that in your life. And now here you are. Now what are you going to do? you got to finish the course. It's all about finishing. And I believe Joshua's final words to Israel in Joshua chapter 22, 23, and 24 is a long narrative that describes one basic idea. Longevity in the land is determined by their faithfulness. That if you want to stay and remain where God has you and grow where God has you, you've got to remain faithful. And I've discovered three things about it. One in chapter 22, one in chapter 23, and another in chapter 24. Clues to being faithful to God. Longevity is determined by faithfulness. How do we remain faithful? Three things. Number one, purity. Number two, perseverance. And number three, preservation. Purity, chapter 22. Perseverance, chapter 23. And preservation, chapter 24. Purity in your relationship with God perseverance in your commitment to God. And three, preservation in the name of God. And that's how you remain faithful. That's how you continue the course that God has set out for you. It's not just about arriving. Salvation is not just about arriving into a relationship. It's about living in the context of that relationship, is it not? I mean, I like starting things. I have trouble finishing them, right? Whether it's starting a book. I've got several books that I have started that I have not yet finished. I mean, I like to start home projects, but it's really hard to finish them. About the only thing I finish is what's on my plate, right? I was taught, I was grew up, you finish everything on your plate. You don't leave anything behind. So that's the one thing I've learned how to finish and finish well. But starting is easy for me. I love to start. Do you like to start things? 
I want to start something new. I want to move on. I want, I've, there, I've got more plans. I've, I've got great vision. You know, and I, so I keep starting things. Finishing is hard for me. But this is one thing I have learned in the last 40 years, and that is how to remain faithful. I must be pure in my relationship with God. I must persevere in my commitment to God, and I must preserve the name of God above all other names in my life. And if I can do those three things, I can remain faithful to the Lord. So let's look at those this morning. Let's look at Joshua chapter 22, 23, and 24. And in chapter 22, Joshua summons a segment of the tribe of Israel. It's not the whole nation of Israel. There are 12 tribes. They've moved into the land. They have discovered that they now have an opportunity to rest. Rest from battle. Rest from conquest. They are in the land and they've been distributed land. And they've now moved in and they're starting to unpack. And each of these 12 tribes have received a portion of this great land. And this land, by the way, we remember, all throughout Joshua is about God's rest. It goes all the way to back to Joshua chapter 1, when Joshua says to the people, as God speaks, and says, I am giving you this land as rest. I want you to rest. And rest always is not a sleep rest. It's a rest in the presence of God. We find ultimate rest from our anxious thoughts and our anxiety and our worry when we're in the presence of God. And so Joshua is telling the people, when we get into the land, the land represents the presence of God where you will find ultimate rest for your souls. We remember in Hebrews that Jesus comes and is that rest. He's the one who brings that rest in Hebrews. And so the the land represents this rest that God wants to give us. It represents his power and his presence in our lives. It represents his, his inheritance. All the promises, we've talked about this a couple weeks ago, everything you need to live the Christian life has been given to you by God. That's your inheritance. You've already been given it. It's already been given out. You don't have to wait. It's already been given. Everything you need in order to fulfill God's purpose for your life and to live the Christian life has already been given to you. All we have to do is claim it. All we have to do is live it. It's already been given. It's all in Scripture. God is faithful. God has given you strength. He will help you overcome temptation. He will fill you with His Spirit. He will remind you of His promises. He will lead you in His will. All throughout Scripture we find God doing that work in our lives. But the first is purity. Purity of a relationship with God. And so Joshua summons the Rumanites, the Gadites, and half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, they're living on the east side of the Jordan. Most of the rest, all the rest of the tribes are on the west side. And they pretty much have taken all the land of Israel. The land of Canaan now has become Israel. But these two and a half tribes are on the east side, which extends the borders of Israel, making it quite larger. But they're on the other side, the vulnerable side, to attack. It's really an unsafe place to be. But that's what they wanted because they had livestock. And they wanted land. And they wanted to have a place for their livestock. And so they said, give us that land. Now, it was a dangerous move. It's a dangerous place to be on the border. Very dangerous. And we learned that 
And what we find here in this passage is their purity in their relationship with God is going to be challenged. And what Joshua reminds them is that the Lord your God has given you rest to your brothers. Verse 4. He's given you the possession. He's given you the land. And then it says in verse 5, Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. Love the Lord your God. Walk in His ways. Keep His commandments. Hold fast to Him. Serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul. See, Joshua doesn't just simply describe our relationship with God as this road obedience. Just obey God. Just do what He tells you to do. Like, we don't have any sand. Like, there's, like, it's just, it's this hard, difficult journey of living the Christian life, of learning how to be obedient. I just got to do what God tells me to do. Don't really want to do it. Don't really feel like doing it, but I got to do it. I just got to jump in there and do it. And that doesn't seem like the kind of God I read in Scripture that wants to give you rest, that wants to give you an inheritance, that wants to give you his blessings. And so what I discover in here is it's not just simply be obedient to the law. It says to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways. There's two words, very key words. The first is halak, and the second is dabak. Halak literally means to walk. It's the manner, the way in which you are living, the manner of your life. It's a, it's a walking in a relationship. It talks about relationship, that I'm walking with God. And the second word here that's really important is to understand this idea of debak, which literally means to cleave. They're called to cleave to God. It's the same word that's used in a marriage relationship as well, that we are to cleave to one another. This, This closeness, this idea that nothing will come between you. That the kind of relationship God says that will help you remain and, be, and to live long and large in the land, to remain faithful, longevity is determined by the purity of your relationship. Nothing gets in between of me and God. Here's what happens in 22. So these three tribes, they're two and a half tribes, so they, they decide that they're going to build an altar. See, they hear the word, but then they go ahead and build their own altar. And it says here in verse 10, when they came to the region, it says that they they built an altar there by the Jordan, a large altar in appearance. Apparently one commentator says they've actually, archaeologists have actually found this altar. I'm not aware of that, but, but, but there might have been an indication that it actually was so large that it actually left a dent. It was there. It was still there. Or there's, a, there's, a, there's evidence of this altar on the east side of the Jordan that this two-and-a-half tribe built. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with an altar. An altar is the place we go to worship God. An altar is the place where you bring the animal, you put the animal on the altar, the animal is slain, and as the blood flows from the animal, your Iniquity, your sin is transferred from you to the animal and is then is then released. And God now has favor and can look upon you again. You have forgiveness. And so the altar was a good place, and the Israelites would bring animals and receive forgiveness. And the animal would be shed on their behalf. Reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? 
that Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. That, that Jesus got on the altar for us. And so it looks forward. So the altar is a good thing. But the problem is the altar was in Shiloh. It was in the middle of Israel. Here they are, east of Jordan, building an altar. And, of course, the rest of the tribes come unglued. They are frightened by this. They know what's happened in Ai. They knew that, they, that, that the minute they disobey God, that God's going to release his hand of blessing, and they are vulnerable to attack. And it even says here that they come together and they want to war with their brothers over this. And the whole congregation of the Lord, verse 16, says, What is this unfaithful act you have done? You've committed against the Lord, turning away from following him. And, and they respond, verse 22, in defense. The mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows and may Israel know itself It was not an act of rebellion. It was not an unfaithful act. We were simply offering an altar to remember God. And they asked, why did you build this? Why did you build this altar? And it says here in verse 23, and here's the point. Here's the point, verse 23. If we have built the altar and turned away and following the Lord, if we built a burnt offering or a grain offering, we didn't build a burnt offering. We didn't build one of those altars in Shiloh. This is just simply a memorial. This is a bloodless altar that we've built. And we did it, verse 24, because out of concern, literally out of fear, that when we die and our sons are raised, that the rest of Israel will forget that they're part of Israel and they might literally be shunned from Israel. There was a fear in their hearts that somehow a wedge would be formed in the relationship that they have in Israel with their God, and they would lose favor. And out of fear, they built an altar. And that's what you and I do. Something gets in between your relationship with God. You build a false altar. It's an altar. It's a bloodless altar. It's an altar that can't save. It can't do anything for you. But yet, we hold on to it out of fear. We're not sure. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we do need to do something in order to be approved by God. And we do that all the time. We build altars in our life that defile our relationship with God. I mean, this is exactly what happens. And we live our lives based upon a, a, a false sense of confidence. It's a false sense of confidence because it's an altar that can't save you. There's no blood. There's no burnt offering here. It's our doing out of fear oftentimes that we build this thing. And we build all sorts of kinds of altars, don't we? It's an altar of performance. It's, I've got I've to work hard. I've got to be approved. It's often an altar of fear. Or maybe it's an altar that I figured out who God is and I worship that God, that image of God. And I've created a different image. And that's my altar. I was at a memorial service. Denise and I were at a memorial service this last, last night. And it was a three-hour memorial service. Two people were being honored. A mom and a dad. They both died in a tragic car accident. Um, down in Cabo San Lucas. Early January. Um, and I was best friends with, the, with this young man's parents growing up. We were best of friends in junior high. And I lived in their home and spent many, many of meals and dinners and, and um, uh, vacations with this family. 
And so they were very close to me, like second parents. And as I sat there, over 200, 300 people down in Long Beach in the Museum of Latin American Art, and speaker after speaker after speaker got up and talked about the life of Yule and June Grossberg and their impact and, and their love for one another and their kids. And I was thinking in my head, all the people that were there, do they know? Oh, do they know what it means to have a relationship with God? Or have they built an altar that at the end of their life will not save them? I was thinking in a memorial service, it's the place to ask the question, have you built an altar that is a false altar to the Lord or to some God or to something that you're worshiping or you're living in fear or you're living out of performance or you're doing something that has nothing to do with a relationship with God that he wants with you, that he wants to walk with you and he wants to bring you into a loving relationship with him. Have we built one of those? It's got to come down or you're not going to make it. It really does. It's got to be rooted out of your faith. And what you have to find here in verse 5 is that you're in this loving relationship with God and you're, 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 you're no longer being made to do what he calls you to do. You want to do it. There's a big difference. When you know that you can trust the one giving you the instruction who loves you, who desires to walk with you. And then all of a sudden, what happens? You desire to do what he's calling you to do. There's a desire because of the relationship. You're no longer living and have erected an altar of fear or shame or insecurity or an altar of merit or any other kind of altar. A false view. You're holding on to a false view of who God really is. He's an angry God. He would never have me. There's no forgiveness in your view of God. It's got to be rooted out. The second thing I find, and of course, the chapter ends, and they realize they've made a terrible mistake, and they bring them back into the fold. War is called off, and they're unified. And then chapter 23, Joshua continues the conversation, the narrative, and he turns to them and says, See what the Lord your God has done, in verse 3, the nations... All these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. He's given you the nations. He's given you the land. Therefore, verse 6, be very firm. Keep to all that is written in the book of the law so that you may not turn aside from the right or to the left. Left or the right. It's an idea that I'm, I'm focused. I'm, I'm looking straight ahead. And the idea of this, this firmness, it literally means... To be firm is to be steadfast, immovable. It speaks of a perseverance in your commitment. So you've made a commitment to Christ. I want to follow Christ. How do I do that? Be firm. Be very firm. That's what he's saying. Kazakh. Kazakh is to be resolute. It's to be determined, to be dedicated, to fasten oneself upon the goal that you now have in front of you. How determined are you to finish the race? I remember reading the shack many years ago that helped me kind of reframe my understanding of the, of the soft, fatherly side of God. His acceptance, his willingness to absorb our anger in the midst of confusion. You've ever been in a place where you are angry with God 
or you have a question for God. Why is this happening to me? What do I do with this? How in the world can there be so much injustice in the world? And you want to find God and you want to ask the question. Mac, the main character of the book, is in a shack meeting with God himself. Now, it's just a story. I mean, we got to all relax here. It's just, a, it's just an interpretation of what it would be like if God were to become human and dwelt, dwell among us in the Trinity, in the form of the Trinity, and actually have a conversation with us and help us really work through some pain, some disappointment, some discouragement. And there's a scene where Mac is so angry at God, he can't even have finish the conversation. And he gets up from the table and smashes the coffee cup and he walks off. It's in the movie. It's wonderful. And in this one scene, he walks by Jesus, who's in his carpenter shop. And Jesus says, I have something to show you. Get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. Go ahead. I'll be there. I'll be right there. And he starts off. And this is, the, this, is a, this is a recapitulation of something we've seen in the Gospels, right? It's the disciples in the boat going across the Sea of Galilee. And they go ahead, and the storm comes, and they get afraid. And Jesus shows up, and he calms the storm, and they get on the other side. But instead of a storm... The boat begins to crack, and, and it begins to fill up. And, and, and instead of being water, it's black. It's like bile. It's, it's horrible. It's oil. It's, it's deep and dark, and, and it's, it gets all over his hands, and, it's, and his feet are sinking in it, and the boat is collapsing. It's breaking apart from the inside, and this black mire goo is coming up into the boat, and he's now in a sea of it, which probably represents something, maybe the pain, the anguish, the anger, the, the disgust, the parts of him that need healing. And he's sinking in it, and Jesus shows up and says, don't look down. Do, don't look down. And what does he do? He looks at Jesus. Look at me. You just look at me. Look into my eyes. And he looks back down, and he starts sinking deeper into it. And he's almost all the way under. No, no, look at me. Put your eyes on me. And he does, and he gets out of the boat. And they begin walking across the lake. It's a beautiful picture. You ever been in there? Ever been in a place where you just needed to look into the eyes of Jesus? I was there. Just this last week. Didn't want to be in the hospital. Never been in the hospital before in my life as a patient. In terms of an overnight stay patient. I've been many a times visiting friends, family, people in our church, community, um, I remember going to Torrance Memorial one time. I knew the guy in the front desk. I he was there so often. Just he'd give me a wave. He knew I was coming in again. Didn't even need a pass. Just go on. I know where you're going. You're going to visit somebody. But this was my opportunity to get into the bed, and I had to stay overnight, and I didn't want to. And I'm like, Denise, are you going to stay with me? Are you going to stay? You're fine. Just relax. Just fine. <laughs> so at 1230 at night, she leaves me all alone in a hospital bed. And I, she had to get home. She really did. She had been with me the whole night. And I had no idea what was coming up next. They wanted to take a closer look at the heart and had some heart issues. And once you have a stent, you're in a new classification. You, you're a, you're, you have heart disease. Whether you like it or not, it's just a term they give you. And I hated having that put on me. But there you go. And if there's any pain or if there's any difficulty, the stent may have closed up. There could have been some. We just got to check it out. So they were going to do this, this um, it's called a nuclear scan test. It sounds horrible, and it is horrible. They shove you into a toaster oven, pull you out after 20 minutes, 
you feel cooked, and then they put you on a treadmill, make you run, and then shove you back into the toaster oven. It's a horrible thing. And I hate it. I don't like to be confined. And I didn't like the feeling of it. And I was in the first go-around, and, and I said, I don't think I can do this. And they allowed Denise to be in the room with me. And she came over and held my hand. And I got to a point where I said, I'm done. I don't care whether I die or not. We are not moving forward with this test. I'm out of here. This is way too confined. My head's out. My arm is over here. And Denise has my hand. And she says, look at me. Look at me. You could do this. She was Jesus to me in that moment. And I took my eyes off myself, my fear, and I put it firmly on Christ, whom I saw through her, as she prayed for me. And as we walked through this thing, I, the pain, you know the anxiety. You know what it's like to be in that situation where you don't want to be there. And it's, it's, it's horrible. I'd rather have my foot cut off than feel that pain. It's that deep a pain. You know that. It's horrible. And yet what God says, hold on, look, look to me. You have to move forward. And the only way to move forward and persevere is to hang in there and look to me. Be very firm. Keep all that is written in it. You've got to overcome the fear in your life. And it's the greatest challenge that, fa- that I face, I believe. It reminds me of a character. I haven't been sleeping that well, so I've been getting up reading East of Eden by John Steinbeck. It's a story of a very, very rough life that one particular young man, Adam Task, has. It's a story of two families growing up in the Salinas Valleys post-World War I. And these are hard times. Adam moves away from his brother after his parents die and marries this woman who Steinbeck calls a monster. He's been beaten by his brother. He's been through the war. And now here he is trying to endure the difficulty of life with all sorts of obstacles. But very, very, very early in the book, he has a conversation with his father, Cyrus. And this is what Cyrus tells him. You're going to grow up and become a soldier. And he goes, I thought Charles would be the better soldier. No, you're going to be the soldier. You're going to be the one. But you must overcome your fear. Or you will not become the man that I believe you will become. To hold your family together, to make it through the trials in this story, in this beautiful story of a difficult life. This is what he says. His father says to him. He looks down to him earnestly and says, nearly all men are afraid. And they don't even know what causes their fear. Shadows, perplexities, dangers without names or numbers, fear of a faceless death. But if you can bring yourself to face not the shadows, but real death, described and recognizable by bullet or saber, arrow or lance, then you need never be afraid again. Or at least, not in the some way you were before. Then you will be a man set apart from other men, safe where other men cry in terror. This is the great reward. Maybe this is the only reward. Maybe this is the final purity all ringed with filth. And there's this 
complexity, of difficulty, of it's not all together, but a confidence. And you have to come to the place where you do overcome that fear. Look to me. God says, I'm fighting for you. I'm going to fight your battles. Look to me. Look to me. Be firm. Be resolute. Verse 8. Cling to me. Again, cling. Cleave. It's coming together. A husband and a wife cleaving to one another because they need each other. It's the picture of God in relationship with us calling us to persevere. Persevere in our commitment. You keep going. You find the strength. You face the fear. You face what it is that's in your life that's keeping you from moving forward. You know what it is. You know what's standing in front of you. And and you could be in high school. You, You could be in college. You could be just starting out in a new career. And you can identify that. Maybe it's something in the past in your life that you cannot reconcile. Something that happened to you a way in which Christianity was demonstrated to you that doesn't make any sense, and you're done. You want to stop. You're not moving forward. You'll never live large and long in the land unless you come to a place where you understand how to persevere in your commitment by facing whatever it is that you're fearing. I will fight that battle for you, God says. I will be that one that you need. And then finally, chapter 24 Joshua gathers all of his elders, all the heads, the judges and the officers, and they all come before God. And then it's, I love this. Joshua says to the people, thus says the Lord. This is God speaking. Notice how many times God says, I. I did this. I did this. This is me in your life. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. And all through, they, 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 they recapture history here in this passage. The history of Israel. I took your father Abraham. I carried him to Canaan. I took and gave Jacob and Esau. I sent Moses and Aaron. I plagued Egypt. I brought your fathers out of Egypt. I, 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 I. I brought you into the land. You crossed over the Jordan because I did it. I gave you a land, verse 13, on which you had not labored until the cities which you had not built and you have lived in them. You are eating of vineyards and olives and groves which you didn't even plant. This is what God wants to do in your life. Flourish. He wants you to be flourishing. He wants to give you all of his blessings. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served from beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Verse 15. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which you were beyond the Jordan, or the gods of the Ammonites... In those lands, you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It is one of the most famous verses in all of Joshua. Choose today whom you will serve. See, it's all about a name. It's all about 
the name of God over any other name. And if you want to live large and long in the land, longevity determined by faithfulness is not only determined by purity in your relationship, perseverance in your commitment, but the preservation of the name of God over you. Rick Warren said in one of the most successful Christian books ever written, The Purpose Driven Life, that the ultimate goal of the universe is to show the glory of God. The ultimate goal is to show the glory of God through your life. Not your glory. Not your goodness. Not your love. Not your power. Not your abilities. But God's. I will speak of the name of God. And when it says, you will serve, it means literally the idea there is that you become like a slave to a master in a good sense You give up your rights, you give up your name, and you take the name of the master. You don't see me, you see God. I speak of God. What I do is because of God. It's not a false humility. It's just a confidence that comes because I've decided to serve God. And he will be the name that I speak. He is my God. He is the Lord. And there will be a challenge. There will be other foreign gods. There will be other names. We give them all sorts of names. And and they compete for God. And yet God says, to remain faithful, preserve my name. C.S. Lewis says, in communicating and commanding us to glorify him, he says, God is inviting us to enjoy him. There's enjoyment when we bring glory to the name of God. There is great, great Because he is the name above all names. And Habakkuk 24, 24 says, One day, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 14. Habakkuk 2, 14. Literally says that one day the entire earth will be filled with the glory of God. And then the end. That's it. And we will live in eternity in the context of the glory of God. No longer us. No longer our name, but God's name. We have all these things that compete for the glory of God in our lives. We've got to root them out. What is that in your life? What is the name that you have given yourself? What is the name that you have put in the place of God? See, you root that out and put God back in. The God. The Lord. Elohim. Yahweh. El. All the names of God are in Joshua 22, 23, and 24. And there we have it. To live long and large in the land is to remain faithful. Pure in relationship. Persevering in commitment. And preservation in the name of God. I will speak of the name of God in my life. His goodness. His work. And that's, that's what you'll hear through my life. Let's pray. Father, what a journey you've had for us over the last 12 weeks. And we feel like we've, we've gone through the mountains, experienced the battles. We've defeated some enemies in our own life. And yet sometimes we feel like, okay, we've arrived, but what do we do now? And I pray, Father, this morning 
I pray we wouldn't give up, no matter what we face, whether it's an illness or discouragement, or whether it's a wrong perspective, or whether it's just unforgiveness or anger or loss, or feeling that, God, you're unfair. Father, we would find a place to meet with you and to have a conversation and walk with you and learn from you and gain new perspective. Continue on in our journey of trusting and believing that you have what is best for us no matter what. And we will stand on that in the name of Jesus.